Greetings from uh, Atlanta, Georgia, and specifically the Bridgepoint Church, which I know you've never heard of because it's really official starting next week. Uh, some great things are going on in Atlanta, and uh, I'll try to share some of those during the message here uh, this morning. This weekend has been uh, really a tremendous opportunity for me to grow, uh, be inspired. Uh, I want to thank uh, Antonio uh, and all his leadership with hope and everything that he does. Um, inviting me here to be a part of the retreat. Yeah, I can do that. Now give me a, give me a second just to take this. Todd and Patty also and all the leadership here. Uh, you guys are blessed to have a tremendous couple uh, leading the church. So humble and so gracious and so uh, generous. Yay. Todd and I met in, uh, at the International Leadership Conference in Denver back in 2009. And I'm not sure how we did, just kind of, I guess, going to and fro the, some of the, the classes and uh, just started talking. And uh, he invited me to Dallas uh, about a year after that, and I had a chance to come here about, I think it's like four years ago, and to, to preach to one of the regions and to preach to the staff. And uh, so I appreciate our friendship. I appreciate uh, Todd's openness to bring so many people in uh, to the church to preach, uh, which means he is a very secure leader uh, and very confident uh, to have so many people come in and also very humble to be able to get insights and perspectives, good, bad, and ugly, for all the things that go on in different churches, and be willing to, to learn. So I really appreciate that uh, about both of you. And I know Patty probably has some, uh, some uh, recipes for me today. Last time we was here, uh, I'm a brother. I like to eat. I don't look like I don't like to eat. So uh, she fixed this uh, chicken that my wife literally has probably, I, I'm not exaggerating, at least two or three times a month fixes is now my daughter's uh, favorite meal, makes her happy, <laughs> and uh, so I thank you so much. But again, and to the church, I thank you for uh, receiving me so well. The hospitality here, uh, your reputation for hospitality is so incredibly uh, awesome. So I thank you so much for allowing me to be here today. Uh, this weekend for the retreat has been, a, a, the title's been Leaving a Legacy of Faith. I decided I might as well just, you know, I was working on some notes and stuff. I'm just going to leave them. We family, right? We family. We brothers and sisters. We're we we going to have a little church talk this morning. Some might call it a sermon or what do you want to call it. So we just got a little talk this morning. I've, been, I've changed my sermon so much. I had one ready prepared to preach. Uh, but then I got with the whole people yesterday. And this whole thing about legacy started to take a whole new meaning for me. And so I woke up this morning and, uh, and changed everything and wanted to share some stuff with you here today. Uh, you can get to be turning to, uh, to Acts chapter 8, and we're going to start there in just a few moments. Uh, but I started thinking about legacy, and I was sharing this with, um, I'm not exactly sure it was the other night, about my family. Next month, uh, my siblings, I have a brother and two sisters, 
and there's nine grandchildren, and my parents are meeting up in Massanutten, Virginia, uh, at a resort. I'm from Roanoke, Virginia, originally, and we're meeting there because it's really an odd time. My, my parents, I, this is the first time I realized that my parents are getting older, and so they called me and said, hey, we want to sit down with the entire family and to talk about our will, and so, you know, that I, will, I've been putting it off for like months, and so finally said, no, we're going to pay, get the whole family together, come up to Massanutten. and we're going to sit down, enjoy fellowship and all that. I got a nieces that are graduating. But the purpose is to talk about the will and the future. So in my family, uh, the Barnett family, the African-American side has been very blessed that uh, we own some land in Virginia, some great land uh, that was given to my ancestors by the slave master, a guy named Ross Barnett. So this was 1790. Way before slavery, the land was divided between his children and he had slave children. And so through all these hundreds of years, the land has been passed down. And so my father now owns it. And so he wants to sit down with his four kids, talk about a will, talk about what to do for the land. I knew as a little child that if someday this land, this, this legacy of land would, would come to me, it's a land that is produced uh, a few years ago, we had people come work on the land to take down trees. There's a lot of hardwood trees. Uh, my grandfather, who owned the land, he was born in 1898, never worked a job until he was 50 years old. Never had to work, was self-sufficient. He went to work at 50 so that he could provide for his two kids who were in college and needed cash. So he didn't even need cash. So at 50, he went to work for this local paper mill. He worked there for 20 years, retired when he was 70, and then this same paper mill, 10 years ago, my grandfather died in 1987, uh, but 10 years ago, the same paper mill that he worked for for 20 years came to his land and said, we don't want to destroy your land or buy your land because nobody wanted to sell it. We just want to take some trees off that we use to make furniture. And so they took 120, they gave my family $120,000 just for trees. My grandfather never saw $120,000 in 20 years working for this paper mill. So this, this is a precious piece of land. In fact, even the plantation house that goes back to slavery is, is down the street. And my ancestors, I have a, a family tree that I could go down now. We have a Barnett family, the black Barnetts and the white Barnetts. They have a reunion, and I can actually go and walk a mile behind this house and see where my ancestors are buried. So this is precious land, and so this legacy is being passed on. So we're going to talk about that. Uh, the, the end is my, so some of that's very exciting, some of it's very morbid to think that, it, you know, my, my father and mother are talking about dying. And uh, I appreciate this land that is going to come to me, that I got to eventually do something with one day and perhaps pass it down to my children. We're trying to figure all that out. But as I started thinking about just the geography, the dirt, the trees, I realized that the greatest legacy that I will get from the Barnetts is the fact that I am one. See, I grew up where my grandparents and parents instilled character by our name. The Barnetts don't live that way. That's how I grew up. The Barnetts don't act like that. The Barnetts don't use drugs. The Barnetts don't get divorced. The Barnetts don't, the Barnetts don't, the Barnetts don't. So I grew up with this standard that if I carry the name, I even see myself doing it with my children. You know, the, the Barnetts don't stay out late. What? <laughs> Some of the third, the Barnetts. I was like, when did that, 
It's my parents' stuff. That's how I grew up, the Barnetts. And so the greatest legacy that I'm going to get really is handed down by who my parents were and the life that they have instilled in me. Uh, most importantly, my father. Uh, I appreciate Kyle sharing uh, very vulnerably today, doing the communion, talking about your father. Uh, that was awesome. And, uh, and I want to take the liberty to, to do the same. We, we didn't plan this at all. It's just the, the sinking of the spirit. Uh, but I want to share just a bit about my father because uh, the, the greatest thing I feel like that I've been handed is that I've been handed an awesome dad. When I was four years old, it was a Sunday, and I can't believe I remember this, but uh, my brother was three, I was four, my mom was pregnant, seven months pregnant. It was a Sunday, and uh, my mom was going back to the second service for church. And she turned around and said to my brother, now here, stay here with your father. My father had been in college, then went to Vietnam, then came back and was finishing school and working. So she said, here, stay and play with your father. So I did. And I'll never forget, I was sitting in the living room, and my I was on one knee, my brother's on the other knee, he was bouncing us around. And we were just bouncing around. And I remember we were playing. I date myself when I say this, but there was a TV show called Adam 12. <laughs> and uh, so I had my grandparents had bought me the Adam 12 cars. And so me and my brother are, are racing the Adam 12 cars. And all of a sudden, there's a knock at the door. Boom, boom, boom. My father just reaches over. He's still sitting on the couch. He just reaches, open the door. And it was our next door neighbor and two policemen. And so my brother and I jumped up because we thought Adam 12. They're at the door. And so we're standing there looking at the police and my neighbor, and they're talking to my father, and my father just starts bawling, starts crying. And he's, he just walks away, and he walks down the hallway, goes into his bedroom, and closes the door. And my brother is sitting there, and the, and the neighbor doesn't know what to say. And then after a while, it got really awkward. Then my father came back down. The police were sitting in the family room, the living room. My father came back down. He picked my brother up, picked me up. You know, our, I remember our little legs hanging. Walked us back to the bedroom, sat down, and he says, uh, I got to talk to you about something. I don't, know how, I don't know where to begin. And we were like laughing and joking. He says, uh, your mom is uh, not coming home. Um, I go, yeah, she is. She's with the church. He goes, no, no. And I, it was frustrating for him to try to get it out. My mom was killed in a car accident by someone who had just committed a crime. Head on collision. She died. He lived. I learned all this later. And my father is sitting there trying to explain to us because we were ready for dinner and her to come home from church. And he was trying to tell us uh, she's never coming home. She won't be home. And he's dealing with this. He's uh, 26 years old at the time. And I'm four. My brother's three. And she was pregnant. So he lost a, a little girl in the womb. He lost his wife. And how he managed that has always been this meta-narrative that has flowed through my life. It is, it is, he managed it with integrity and character and love. And so when that happened, he reached down to us, and my brother and I knew that we were absolutely the most important things on earth. Uh, later, when I was in high school, I, I had a car accident, and I had to go to court. And I'm sitting in court. And I had to go before the judge, and this police officer was really a mean guy at the time and wanted me to lose my license. I had just got it. And my father is sitting there in court, very confident, just standing there like this. And, uh, and I didn't know all this at the time, so I'm telling you, this is what happened. I was there. I go, go up with my father. My father stands right next to me, to the judge. He says to the judge, he said, this is my son. And he starts saying all this stuff about me 
that I'm, I'm 16 and going. He says, my son is going to be one of the greatest men on earth. My son doesn't do, and he's just going on and on about my son, my son, my son, my son is this. He says, and uh, he's, he has scholarships. He's going to go to West Point Military Academy. So to do all this would just not be good. The judge says, you're exactly right, Father, and threw it out. And then we walked out. And I walked out. I said, that was easy. And then um, my dad turns to me. My dad said, well, when you were younger and your mom died, the courts came to take you. They said a 26-year-old African-American man could not raise two boys to go to school and work. So they were going to split you up between your grandparents. I had no idea about this. And, uh, and so my father in court, when I was little, my grandmother later told me that when they were doing the court to take the children, my father grabbed me and my brother and walked us out of the court, turned back around and told the judge, you're not taking my sons. You're going to have to find another way. And I got... Just thinking about that image today of him saying, these are my sons, and you are not taking them. And he walked out of the court. Fast forward 13 years, it was that same judge who was there. And so the judge winked at my father and said, this is out of here. So I, I say that to say that the, the greatest legacy that I will get is the fact that I have a father that, that I don't need to be left money and lands. I'm, I, I have a legacy of love uh, that has been given to me. And so I, I wanted to, to share with you today a sermon. Let me get to that. Uh, look in Acts chapter 8. Um, and I know you know this story very well. It's uh, Philip and an Ethiopian eunuch. And uh, my purpose in sharing this with you is because I think as uh, disciples, particularly as we, we get older in the faith and we grow and we hold, particularly for those of us who hold positions in the church, hope, you know, whatever, you know, we elders, staff, small group leaders, whatever the case may be, we do positions in the church, we teach in the children's ministry, uh, we do things, I think, uh, in terms of just leaders, we start talking about what are we going to leave the next generation, and uh, we start talking about the specifics, what kind of church will they be, what kind of church will we build, and I think all those things are important, but I think ultimately it boils down to discipleship 101, and the story that we're going to read here th today demonstrates how far God is willing to go, our Father in heaven, how far God is willing to go for one person. Sometimes when we think about saving the world and saving our city, that's just, that's just too big to think about. It's a lot easier if we just think about, and it's the phrase that I, I use a lot of times in our church, each one, reach one, and teach one. I want you to imagine what this church would look like if everybody that says, I am a disciple of Jesus, made the good confession that Jesus is Lord, if, say, over the next year, you were able just to reach one person to teach them, to, to love them into the kingdom of God, what it would be like. And what happens is as we get older in the faith, we sometimes forget that that's what God has called us to do, and we just assume or delegate it to other folk. 
hope other people are going to be doing those things. And so I want to I bring it back home this morning in this text that God is calling each one of us, just, just go find one person. I wake up every day, let's be just one. I ain't, it's not every, just one person. That's all I'm looking for. Over the next 52 weeks, if I could just find one person, or if you have done that in the past, think about, well, when the last time I did it? And I know as a church leader, uh, I can feel real good about my, all my responsibilities and preaching and teaching and caring for people and stuff, that that becomes my Christianity. Be ultimately, we know the Great Commission says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptize them, and continue to teach them. That's for every disciple. So they all went out there and did it. So God is really interested in saving one. Let's look at Acts chapter 8. Verse 26, now an angel of the Lord, this is the quintessential discipleship one-on-one passage, go south to the road, the desert road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out, and on his way, he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of the treasury of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship and on his way home was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. The spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you're reading, Philip asked? How can I? Unless someone explains it to me. Don't we all want that? Meet people. How can I? I need somebody to study the Bible with me. Explain this to me. So invited Philip to come up and sit with him. The eunuch was reading this passage of scripture. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter and as a lamb before the shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants for his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, tell me, please, who's the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, look, here is water. Why shouldn't I be baptized? Don't we all want the people we're reaching out to to, hey, there's some water right here. And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptized them. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. Philip, however, appeared at Azotus and traveled about preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. Here is God, and I'm going to show you that, okay, you got Philip here. He's the evangelist. You got this Ethiopian eunuch, probably the first Gentile convert there's going to be. Acts chapter 8, there's a great persecution in the church. So everybody leaves the church except for the apostles who remain behind. And so Philip, the evangelist, he's, he's running for his life. But wherever they ran, they preached. And so he began to preach, and he is preaching in Samaria, the place of the half-breeds. Back in the times of Nehemiah, the restoration of the wall, some Jews in America, they became the Samaritans. The Jews considered them half-breed, half-breed dogs. In the time of Jesus, they would even go through a Samaritan area. Now, here is Philip. He ends up in Samaria. He goes down there. You can read the early part of Acts chapter 8. He goes there, and he is preaching Jesus. And guess what the Samaritans are doing? They're repenting. And then he runs into this guy named Simon the Sorcerer. The Bible says he went around telling about it. He was the power, the great power. And people were following him. 
he preaches to Simon. And guess what Simon does? He repents and he believes. Now, he has some stuff mixed up trying to buy the Holy Spirit. But anyway, <laughs> Philip is successful. He is having success. He didn't, it, he just landed in it. He's there, the Samaritans, people are, there's miracles and healings and teachings and people are, resp they're responding so well that later P Peter and John go down there because they are overwhelmed with all the success. Now, in the midst of that success, and this is where God speaks to us, in the midst of our success and our victories, when churches are going well and ministries are going well and hope is going well and our families are going well and everything is perfect, there is a time that God may somehow intervene in our life through the Spirit and say, I want to send you somewhere. Philip could have easily turned back and said, wait a minute, whoa, 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 whoa. You want me to go where? To the desert road? Ain't no ministry in the desert. That was 50 miles south. That was a three-day journey. But God knew that he had someone, God determines the exact times and places where we should meet. He knew that an Ethiopian eunuch had traveled five, eight hundred miles, was making his way, a worshiper of God who was interested, who was reading, who was open and needed a disciple of Jesus in his life. And so he said, I need you to go, Philip. But my ministry is going well. We're baptizing people. Man, I'm building this church. Have you heard about the Samaritans? Have you heard about Simon? I've turned him around. He's now on our side. He's preaching Jesus. This thing is just going. And the desert road? You want me to go to the desert? The de desert road? Who could possibly? And I'm sure he's just walking. 50 miles. He's just walking. And he's just out in the middle of the desert. First thing I want to share with you today, if we're going to reach one person, man, we have got to... Stop wanting to be so comfortable. The goal of American life is comfort. How we paint our houses, the furniture we buy, our special rooms, our jobs. And as we get older, there's a tendency to even to want to settle down. I, we'll say, so I've moved my last time. I hear people talk, I went here, and I went here, and I went here, and I went here. Now I'm at this age. I've moved my last time. This is the last house I'm going to buy. And God may say, well, it ain't the last place you're going to live. <laughs> it might be the last one you're going to buy, but it ain't the last place you're going to live. And so what happens is, I'm just asking you this morning, brothers and sisters, we family. I'm asking myself, you know, like, are you uh, prepared to still, no matter how old you are or how long you've been around or how young you are, are you at this moment still prepared to follow the prompting of God if God sends you to the desert road? Why would God do that? Because God is so concerned, even down to the individual level, that he has plans for people. And I like Philip. It says the angel of the Lord came to him, and he went down. I guess if an angel came to us, we would probably just have no problem going. That's what I would imagine. But he got down there, and he saw the Ethiopian eunuch. And the spirit told him. 
to go stand in that chariot. And I'm sure that whole trip, this was very, very uncomfortable for him. I don't know if you guys ever heard about the story that the eagles that stir the nest and how eagles fly. And we look up, you see, watch a huge eagle. They're just majestic. They're symbols of our country. But no one has ever seen how they actually learn how to fly. And this is what the mother eagle does. They put a nest up high on a peak. And she starts building the nest first with thorns and bones from prey that she has killed. And she takes jagged rocks and all this stuff, not the stuff you would think you would build a nest for, but she puts that stuff as the foundation of the nest. And then she takes like fur and wool from animals and leaves, and she layers that on top of the thorns and the rocks and the bones, makes it nice and comfortable. Then she puts the, the, the eggs in there, the little eaglets, and they, they hatch. And then the mother goes out every day and brings back food from and feeds them beak to beak, just drops food in, and they just sit there like this. And they just sit there, and they're small, and they got plenty of room, and she just feeds them every day, and they're just, just getting it all in. And then about the age where they're supposed to fly, they are now have eaten so much, they had, had to move that they're getting bigger, and they're a little bit uncomfortable, and they're pushing against the other little eaglet next to them, and they get this, this, this ant's feeling that it's time to get out. And that's the time the mother eagle teaches them how to fly. So she grabs one, and she puts the eaglet on her back. And she flies up as high as 5,000 feet in the air. And so the, they can begin to feel wind, which triggers their, their flight response. And so when they're that high, the mother eagle flips over backwards, and they fall off. <laughs> and they begin to plummet to the earth. And meanwhile, she's flying above them, and they're just, you're just going back and forth. The wind is drifting. They're flipping, flopping. And right before they crash the ground, she swoops down with her talons, picks them up. And I know they probably in their little eaglet self go, oh, God, thank you, I'm saved. You know what she does? <laughs> she puts them back on her back, takes them back up to 5,000 feet, and does it all over again. And she keeps doing it over and over again to eventually at some point, literally, the wind beneath their wings catches, and they start flying. And you, I want you to imagine what it would be like for the first time to just be able to soar. And then all the natural instinct that is built into them kicks in, and they're doing what they're supposed to be doing. They're doing their purpose, what they're created for, and they're flying. I think God wants to do that with us. And I'm not sure where, where you are as a church or where we are at a church in Atlanta, but uh, God has been uh, dis disturbing the comfortable and comforting the disturbed all, in all kind of ways. But I think God is always, I feel like, I go, God, are you taking me up in the air right now? And you're about to drop me for 5,000 feet and see how I'm going to, you know, flop through the air to see if I can fly and soar. But you know what? They will never fly. They will never fly if they don't leave the nest. Now, I told you that the mother either picks them up the nest, but you know what she does? She makes them uncomfortable first. And what she does is while they're in the nest, she comes in with her talons and she picks away the fur. She picks away all the fur and she exposes the thorns and the bones. And so as they move around, they start getting, you know, you know just poked and all that stuff. And they're like, it's time to get out of here. It's time to leave the nest. And they want to go, God might be, and I don't know, prompting you, poking you in some ways to do some things or to not want to be so comfortable in your life. Amen. God wants you to uh, be able to soar as disciples of Jesus, like soaring his wings, like Isaiah 40, 
the purpose for which God has created us. God has somebody, I really believe, out there for each one of us in the world that he wants us to, to reach one and to teach one so they can become a disciple of Jesus, all right? The second thing here is that once you are out of the nest and you are, you know, getting prodded to do something, I don't know what it is, follow the Spirit. Now, I think we need to get advice and we need to talk to other people and leaders and human beings, and there's a lot of wisdom in that. But God speaks to us through his spirit. How? I, don't, I really don't. I can't tell you how it happens. Uh, I can tell you that you can prepare for it, and this is how you prepare for it. In Matthew chapter 26 in the Garden of Gethsemane, um, verse 38, somewhere in there, Matthew chapter 26, Jesus in the garden says, hey, can you give me one hour? of prayer. He said, because the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. So watch and pray. So one way that I know that we can prepare for the prompting of the spirit is to be people who are always praying, devoted to prayer, and always watching. Now, in John chapter 6, verse 60 through like verse 66, Jesus says that the flesh counts for nothing, and that the spirit is life. And then he says, the words I have spoken to you are spirit. So this may seem very simple to us as just disciples. We should know this. The way we get prepared for the prompting of the spirit is to be people who are constantly in God's word, because God's word is spirit, and spirit gives us life. Paul writes in 1 Timothy chapter 2 that God did not give us a spirit of timidity, but one of power, one of love, and one of self-control. Not one of fear, not one of timidity, power, love, self-control. And then he says, so fan into flame this gift of God. Fan it, get it going. Be praying more than you ever have. Be getting God's word more than you ever have. So that when the Spirit speaks up, you are more inclined to hear what the Spirit says to you and how the Spirit is prompting you to move. In Atlanta right now, I don't know if you guys are all aware how Atlanta is, but Atlanta has been seven separate congregations. And what the Lord has been doing, at least with me, over the last nine years, has been trying to be a bridge builder and bringing some of those congregations back together. So we've had congregational mergers. We've, I've gone through the process three times, and it is arduous just trying to bring congregations back who have been separated and even just doing different things from a financial point of view, a legal point of view. The first time we had a discussion with one congregation, we did it for 10 months and then did not merge. And then we had another merger back in 2009 that took 10 months and we did merge. And we became the Atlanta Metropolitan Christian Church. And now the Atlanta Metropolitan Christian Church is merging with the Marietta Christian Church to form Bridgepoint Church, and we've been doing that for the last 11 months. It's official next Sunday. But all of that, even when it started happening, I, I said, we, we had the conversations that the, the Spirit was moving for us to come back together, and my first thought was, I'm not doing that. That's too much. I'm too busy. I don't have time to sit down. We don't need attorneys no more. There's legal stuff and, and all these late-night meetings and trying to get us back together and leadership. You just can't imagine all the stuff is coming back together. My advice is don't ever break up. Just don't, just don't do it. Because if there's ever any hint that you're going to come back together, it ain't worth breaking up in the first place, let me tell you. But the Spirit has been moving in a mighty way to move us to come back together. And I realize as, a, as a, uh, our kind of fellowship of church, that's hard to explain because we don't have language for Spirit. 
If I get up and say, there's a Ben Washington, I feel like the spirit is leading us. And how would that be? How, how, how is it spirit? You, anything could be said spirit. How do you know it's spirit? Well, how do you know it's not? But it's, it's, it's mysterious. And I realize even trying to explain to our church, I feel like this is what the spirit is doing in Galatians 5.25. It says, since we live by the spirit, let us keep in step with the spirit. But we just haven't been a group that understands spirit language. And so I had to convince our church biblically that the spirit is something that God gave us to do a whole lot of different things. And the spirit, I know Paul wanted to go here and the spirit of Jesus said no. He wanted to go down here and the spirit of God said don't do that. So he went over here and planted the church. How did he know that was the spirit? How do we know? It's very hard to tell. But a lot of times we really have to test the spirit, see what God wants to do. But it's been a blessing. I'm excited about what God is doing. We will have our official service as Bridgepoint Church uh, uh, next Sunday. Uh, even though we're coming back together, we're still going to have two locations, one in Marietta, if you know Georgia, and one in downtown Atlanta. So just be praying for us to continue to listen to the spirit of God. Amen. And then the last thing I want to share with you as I, as I close up here, thank you, thank you, um, is that we, we got to grow to be able to making disciples is not a science it's more like an art and the book of acts just shows us how it's not a science now we know faith and repentance and baptism and all those things but the book of acts just gives us a list starting from the the day of pentecost all the way through you go through every chapter whether it's ethiopian eunuch or saul or lydia or apollos or the Philippian jailer, or the Ephesians believers. You just go, this, it just tells us how people became Christians and how they were met in households. What do we know about that? It says here that this Ethiopian unit, he was sitting there reading Isaiah, which was amazing that he even had a copy of it. But he's reading it, and, he, and he's so open, he goes, I don't understand what I'm reading. I need somebody to explain it to me. And Philip goes, give it to me. I wonder how many of us can, can do that. I'm talking about taking people wherever they are. This morning, my phone rang four times. People know I'm gone. And I said, this must be my family. And so I looked down, the number didn't recognize. And so then the guy leaves me two messages and three text messages. And it says this, hey, my name is Willie. I got some flowers for my wife today. He's going to bring it to David at church. Will you please speak to my wife and me? Today's her birthday. I'm thinking about divorcing her. Please call me. So I texted back. I said, I will not. I am in Dallas getting ready for a certain dog. I just said, <laughs> I said, I, I share your concern. I don't know Willie. I don't know him. I don't know I got my number. I share your concern. I'm out of town. He says, I appreciate, he texts me back. I appreciate you getting back with me. Can you please call me? I call him. I text him back. No, I cannot until I get back to Atlanta. I'm busy really doing something. He texts me back again. I really need you to call me because me and my wife are falling apart. And if you could just call me and point me in a direction so I can give the flowers to somebody else at church. I don't know Willie. I get these people all the time. How do you take a Willie? And wherever they are in life, and lead them to Jesus. 
How do you take somebody that's been baptized seven times and lead them to Jesus? How do you take somebody who is, uh, has uh, solid postmodern thoughts about God? We, and our children in particular, are living in a generation where they have access to information. You can say something about God, they go, hold up, Google. And they can Google what you say. I read this. We have people that are reading, sending, texting, posting, blogs. They're more informed about God and stuff. And the thing that I'm noticing, even for the people that back in the first principle study days, is that we are now encountering people that know more. And they are wanting answers. They are wanting you to lead them from where they are to Jesus. And it may not be in a, a super formatted thing that goes in order because they got other questions. And we want to know, what does the good news say about my marriage, my third one, my fourth one? What's it say about raising children, mixed families, and all, the, I mean, all those different kind of things? Are we the kind of people that are prepared to take people starting with that very passage of Scripture? I'm not sure. I know in our church, I ask people, I said, how many of you in our congregation right now could take Isaiah 53 and lead people to Jesus? And they go, well, what study is that? <laughs> is that in the kingdom? Was that big? It's like, what study is that? I said, no, it's, it's Isaiah 53, 52. Can you take somebody, even now? Think about in Hebrews, it says, let us lead the elementary teachers of Christ and move on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance that lead to death. And then it starts talking about the spirit, starts a whole lot of stuff. And that's elementary teachings. Todd and I was talking this morning as we had breakfast before church. What, what, what do we need to do to prepare God's people as we move forward in the future to be able to sit down with anybody that has questions? How do you respond to Muslims and Jews, transgender? All the sexuality issues. You know how most people in my church do it? Ben, what do you think? <laughs> That's what happens. I get an email. What do you think? I got an email from the brother who's preaching for me today out of Nehemiah texting me, Nehemiah and Jeremiah, just hold on a text message and go, I was researching this. Is it true? And I, I, I said, respectively, I don't have time to type out a text message to answer the question about Nehemiah and Jeremiah, uh, I'm going to assume your research is fine. And then I said, most churches are not going to pay attention to it anyway. <laughs> it doesn't really matter. You just, just preach it. If it's wrong, you can correct it later. He goes, thank you. Big help. <laughs> I'm just saying we got to do our work, brothers and sisters. So I, I want to I leave you this morning. You know, I want to invite you. Uh, if you will, to think about this, what it would look like for this church is each one of you, I'm including hope in everybody, every disciple, each one said, I'm going to reach one and I'm going to teach one because I'm telling you, it is what God has called us to do. But brothers and sisters, it is what we need to do. Amen. Thank you guys so much for having me here in Dallas. Uh, thank you, Todd and Patty. And uh, God bless you.